0: Hello and welcome to the second podcast from the Leathercraft Masterclass with me, Phil. And I'd like to say a big thank you, first of all, to everybody who streamed or downloaded the first podcast. It was interesting because I got a lot of feedback from people um, with requests and things like that, and uh, a lot of people saying I'd like to be interviewed, I had a lot of people coming forward lots of different questions, and some people giving me advice on what they think would improve the podcast, so I really do appreciate all the feedback and interaction that people have been sending my way. One of the biggest requests, though, has been readers' questions, which a lot of people find, who listen to podcasts certainly that they really enjoy because there might be a lot of questions that you have yourself or perhaps you didn't realise that it was actually a big question or something that you really wanted to know. So I thought I'd start the show with randomly selecting some of the questions that have been sent my way. I didn't really want to cherry pick the questions, um, you know, and go, I like this question, I don't like that question because the questions to me aren't really things that I'm always interested in answering necessarily but people want my perspective on things so I will give them that. Talking about interviews I have two people lined up um, that many of you who um, certainly quite a few of you on Instagram may know but I won't say who they are just in case it falls through you know how these things go they can't do them this week um, but they will be in the next few weeks we'll sort something out but if you do want to be interviewed please please Again, contact me and let me know. But getting on to the questions, Reader's question, the first one is from Rayleigh from South Carolina, somewhere I've never been in the world, but uh, certainly love to go one day. And she writes in and says, How can I earn more money from selling leather goods? Well, Rayleigh, that is the question, really, isn't it? <laughs> literally the million-dollar question. Um, it, it's a... It's a complex question because there's so many different ways to do the same thing. but I will tell you I guess from a, from my own experience and the experience of many other people, and some of you might relate to this, is when you focus just on the money, you tend to lose the passion if you know the money is is more of a result rather than just the goal. Um, certainly in in the craft world. So, if you're worried about just earning lots of money, not necessarily lots of money, you just specifically said, you know, more money, um, which I'll go into and I'll discuss, but if that's your sole focus, you might want to think about, you know, re-figuring out what you want from this. Because if you focus just on the money, your craft will suffer, and then you may not be able to sell more. So, I would start out by thinking what are you good at? That's the main thing. What is your niche? What do you do well? What excites you? What gets you going? And then try and focus on that as much as you can. Many people start out and choose something that it's everybody else is doing. And then they get to a certain level and then they start trying to market their leather goods and then they either sell them online maybe on their own website on etsy in craft fairs and all different all manner of places that you can sell other goods but if you're producing something that lots of other people are also producing it's very difficult to stand out and that's what you want to do in order to earn a good living from something is to stand out and do something different it's also called the Blue Ocean Strategy. I believe there was a book written about it, but anyway, you want to try and figure out what's not being done, or what do people want that isn't currently being catered for. For example, this podcast. Lots of people love podcasts, and there isn't any podcasts specific to leatherwork, at least that got off more than one episode. Anyway, so I always recommend trying to focus on things that aren't being done that people want and even just even if people don't know that they want it when they see something different it can be all they need to purchase that from you. I remember reading something quite some time ago I can't for the life of me remember who wrote it or where I read it but it went along the lines of you are compensated financially in direct proportion to the value of the problem that you solve. So, it's an interesting concept. I'll say it one more time. You are compensated financially directly in proportion to the problem that you solve. So, if somebody, say for example, they have a problem. They want to buy a new wallet and they want it, you know, handmade. They want a handmade wallet. That's a problem, okay? It's it's not a, a general problem in life. It's not like, you know, you've got to go to the doctors and you can't get the bus. It's, 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 uh, it's, but it, it's an itch that needs to be scratched, shall we say. Okay. So we'll call that the problem. They want a wallet and they want a handmade wallet. Where are they going to buy that wallet? Okay. So let's say for example, that you say, for example, they go on Etsy. Okay. So they choose Etsy and there's lots of crafty things going on there. There's got to be someone making handmade wallets and you betcha there is. So they put in handmade wallets. And 20 pages of handmade wallets all around the world come up. It's a a plethora, it's a sea of wallets. And a lot of them look the same. So that problem that they have, you're not the only solution to that. So although you might be solving their problem in the sense that you produce what they're looking for, so does everybody else. So you don't just need to solve a problem You need to try and be the only one solving that kind of problem, a very specific problem. Maybe you niche out and you do something completely different with Leathercraft. Maybe you buy, I don't know, off the top of my head, um, vintage boxes and then you wrap them in thin leather and then you put creative decorative designs painted over the top. Um, with custom logos or things like that. It's just, just you know just making something off the top of my head that you're probably not going to find exactly that thing. And then you'll get lots of people going, oh, I've never seen that before. That's something new. That's something different. I like it. And maybe they didn't know they needed it or that they wanted it. So sometimes just by de- you know, being different, you can get sales. A really good example of finding a problem that people have or they didn't know they had or they didn't know there was a solution to is the inventor uh, behind the Dyson brand. If you look at, for example, vacuum cleaners, over the decades that you know, vacuum cleaners, maybe even a century, I don't know how old vacuum cleaners uh, are, how long they go back, but uh, if you look at vacuum cleaners as, as an example, previously, before bagless vacuums, if you, you know, halfway through vacuuming the house, you realize that your bag is filled, you go to get another one and you don't have any left. Damn, what's your choice? Okay, so you've got to stop what you're doing, get in the car, drive into town, find somewhere to park up, get out the car, walk into town, go into that random shop where you get keys cut and they repair your shoes and, you know, buy Zippo lighters and uh, and they also have um, uh, vacuum bags. So, you go to the guy and you say, hey, um, how's it going? I'm looking for vacuum bags for a Hoover, I don't know, DC-53. Maybe it's named after an airplane. Uh, mm, we've got the uh, DC-54. Is that the same one? Oh, I don't know. I thought you knew that. Nah, they're all different, you see. Now, this one has a notch on the side, so it doesn't fit into the DC-53. You know, and it's and it's this the whole thing, and, and hopefully it fits anyway. You take it back home, you put it back in, away you go. Dyson arrives on the scene. Hey, guys, check out this new vacuum cleaner. Zero bags. Look at that cyclonic action. You can even see all your dirt whirring around. No bags, and guess what? No loss of suction either. So, now not only do you have to not buy bags anymore, that's going to save money. There's no loss of suction. So when the bags full normally, you get you know half the suction. It's not doing the job properly. Well, now, you know problem solved obviously it's very expensive and it also comes in these awesome designs that is a brilliant example and the reason why that guy is a multi-billionaire is he found a problem and then found a solution it wasn't necessarily an obvious problem because people just didn't realize that there was even a solution you know there was no alternative there was no other idea presented people just thought out oh, are bags and that's it But then Dyson comes along and finds a solution to that problem, and guess what? How many people have Dyson vacuum cleaners in their homes now? And not only does it create a solution to many problems, it's also a status symbol. I remember when they first came out, they were so expensive. Anybody who's anybody wanted a Dyson vacuum cleaner, and not not only did they want people to know that they had a Dyson vacuum cleaner, they would put it out. And I remember this so that you could see that they had a Dyson vacuum cleaner because that meant you were, you know, you were doing pretty well financially. So it became a status symbol. So, (laughs) So, you know, when you find a solution to a problem that people not necessarily knew that they had, you can then find a solution to that and earn money. What problem that is and how you can solve it, that is completely up to you, your own level of creativity and your ability to market it. And lastly, all about attention. You need to get as much attention as possible. So if you are making leather goods and you want to sell more, if more people are aware that you make leather goods, you have more chance of selling more. I mean, marketing doesn't necessarily work quite like this, but there's more than 7.5 billion people on the earth. Okay, And let's say that you have a really... Really badly made $20 card holder. Okay, and you present that to every person on earth. Now, let's say that only one in t- 10,000 people, okay, a terrible conversion rate, one person in 10,000 bought that terrible $20 card holder because they thought it was charming and ironic. <laughs> You will end up selling over 750,000 of them. So that's three quarters of a million cardholders. That would net you at 20 bucks a pop over 15 million. So (laughs) essentially, you wouldn't have enough of a lifespan to make them. So, and you know, marketing doesn't necessarily work like that. That's an you know, extremely crude example and you should always target your audience because you shouldn't just try to sell to everyone, you should try and sell to the right people and find out where those people are and more importantly where their attention is. And social media is a fantastic place to do that. So if you can get involved with companies, influencers, places that can promote you or places that you're going to be seen more, that is a great way to sell more. So, obviously, try not to get lost in the sea of what everybody else is doing and trying to make what everybody else is doing. And if you are, then you need to be marketing differently. Um, there's um, the only example that comes to my mind is somebody on Instagram I saw the other day um, on my, um, I can't remember, what, it's not the search feed, it's it's uh, it's where they put the things that you might be interested in on Instagram. Anyway, I saw this one, and he was selling cold ho- card holders and wallets, uh, simply stitched, nothing fancy, just veg tan, nothing else. Um, edges finished nice, burnished nice, and everything else. It's not bad leather goods. But the difference is he hires half naked models to appear in, you know, w- like one in five of his posts and you're scrolling through his feed, and he's got these uh, scantily clad ladies, it's not something I would recommend or do personally. But he's producing something that lots of other people are also producing. And there's lots of people making something similar, taking good photos, but he did something quite controversial. And interestingly, his comments, half of them are haters, are people that don't like what they see. And the other half are people that obviously like what they see and he's got a lot of followers and he looks like he's making a killing but his leather goods that he's selling aren't particularly above lots of other people on Instagram he's just found a a way to do something differently he might be creating more negative attention than positive but he's creating attention and that's the main thing and that's causing a lot of followers and a lot of sales so I don't recommend that type of marketing at all but doing something differently thinking outside the box avoiding the status quo and trying not just to copy what everybody else is doing thinking differently i mean that was apple's um marketing slogan for well i think it still is now think different you know that's uh definitely if if it's good enough for apple it's good enough for you right <laughs> but um and lastly, I'll, I'll skip to the next question in a second. The last thing I would say, and it's something that I have started to do in my own you know, social media um, posts, is try not to concentrate on just telling everybody what it's made of. It's not a baseball card, It's something that you've created personally from your own ideas. You've taken the time to create something, present it to the world, to take pictures. Um, and And that takes a lot for some people. And I think just going, this card holder is made with vegetable tan leather. We only use the finest quality full grain leathers. We also hand stitch with strong linen thread, it will last a lifetime, you'll be handing it down to your grandchildren. It's, uh, you know, so many people just read off stats about what they built, but that's not necessarily why people buy things. I think it's very important to explain to people why you decided to make it the way it is, or from what it is, or what it means to you, or how much you enjoy the opportunity to you know pursue your crafts your passions and what you do and just talk about a little bit more about the emotions behind it why you chose to make it a certain way and what it means to you and then finish off with going we only use the finest quality full grain leather we hand stitch this with, you know linen thread etc etc but don't make that the sole focus try and um, you know Include something thought-provoking, emotive, or make people feel like there's, there's more to you. And that also includes putting pictures of you in social media. I know a lot of people don't like that, but people love to see that there's a person, there's you know there's a human being behind the craft. Because that's why people want to buy handmade, is because there is somebody out there, a craftsman or craftswoman, uh, making something by hand taking an idea and bringing it to life rather than a machine. So they don't necessarily want to see your tools next to a finished product. They want to see you halfway through making it. Maybe you're looking at the camera. Maybe there's a short video of you talking and that brings a human element into it. And that's why people love handmade goods. It's the human element. Sometimes people buy handmade goods because they feel like they'd love to be involved in a craft uh, but they don't have time, maybe they've got a hectic job, maybe they've got family and kid commitments. They just you know, don't have the time to do what you do, but they'd love it. And the only way that they can participate in that is to buy into it is to buy something made by an artisan because it's almost like they would want they want to be you. So show you and let them see you and let them see what you're doing and show that there's a real human being on the other side putting hard work into effort into what you do and then present why you do it, and then, you know, show some uh, seductive pictures of what you make. So, moving on to the next question, uh, we have Daniel from Norway. Again, another place I've never been. I've been to Sweden, I've been to a few Scandinavian countries, I've never been to Norway. Always wanted to. Uh, Amazing scenery from what I've seen. Anyway... Daniel from Norway writes in and says, or DMs in actually, in this case, um, how can I improve to a master level? Now that's interesting. Um, the The path to mastery is uh, one is one that everyone I think is, is who's into leather, who's even bothering to listen to a podcast about leathercraft, obviously improving and learning is something that you're interested in so i guess this is a journey that everybody listening and myself is on um there's a there's a good book it's i'll tell you what it's not the easiest read in the world but it's by richard Sennett and it's called the craftsman and i did i did actually pull up a quote from it it wasn't a quote it's actually a passage um So I'll read this directly from the book. Uh, It gives an example of craftsmanship that some people might not uh, endorse but I will read its entirety anyway because it gives a really good insight into the mindset of the craftsman. So I'll read it from the book. So this is The Craftsman by Richard Sennett. The word craftsman summons an immediate image. Peering through a window into a carpenter's shop, you see an elderly man surrounded by his apprentices and his tools. Order reigns within. Parts of chairs are clamped neatly together. The smell of wood shavings fills the room. The carpenter bends over his bench to make a fine incision for marquetry. The shop is menaced by a furniture factory down the road. The crosswoman might also be glimpsed by a nearby laboratory. There, a young lab technician is frowning at a table on which six dead rabbits are splayed on their backs, their bellies slit open. She's frowning because there's something gone wrong with the injections she's given them. She's trying to figure out if she did the procedure wrong or if there's something wrong with the procedure. The third craftsman might be heard in the town's concert hall. There an orchestra is rehearsing with a visiting conductor. He works obsessively with the string section going over and over a passage to make the musicians draw their bows at exactly the same speed across the strings. The string players are tired, but also exhilarated because their sound is becoming coherent. The orchestra's manager is worried. If the visiting conductor keeps on, the rehearsal will move into overtime, costing management extra wages. The conductor is oblivious. The carpenter, lab technician and conductor are all craftsmen, because they are dedicated to good work for its own sake. Theirs is practical activity, but their labor is not simply a means to another end. The carpenter might sell more furniture if he worked faster. The technician might do better by passing the problem back to her boss. The visiting conductor might be more likely to be rehired if he watched the clock. It's certainly possible to get by in life without dedication, but the craftsman exemplifies the special human condition of being engaged. In today's labor market, doing good work is no guarantee of good fortune. In work, as in politics, sharks and incompetence have no trouble succeeding. Most men and women today spend the largest chunk of their waking hours getting to work, working and socializing with people they know at work. The desire to do a good job is one way to make these hours matter. Competence and engagement, the craftsman's ethos appear to be the most solid source of adult self-respect, according to many studies conducted in Britain and the U.S. All craftsmanship is founded on skill development to a high degree. By one commonly used measure, about 10,000 hours of experience are required to produce a master, carpenter, or musician. As skill progresses, it becomes more problem-attuned, such as the lab technician worrying about procedure, whereas people with primitive levels of skill struggle to get things just to work. At its higher reaches, technique is no longer a mechanical activity. People can feel fully, think deeply about what they are doing once they do it well. So that's the, uh, that's the bit that I wanted to read you from the craftsman, and that really gives you a good insight into... The reason somebody becomes a master at a craft. And uh, the 10,000 hour rule is actually something that I first came across in a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I think I've mentioned that before in some of my lives. But it's, it's you know, it's it would be more believable if it was like 9,500 hours. But it's, it's actually not. It's quite almost dead on to 10,000 hours that they've studied uh, over the centuries Um You know, from people who have been absolute masters and been famous for being the best in the world at what they do. So 10,000 hours, it just means a lot of time. So the more time that you can dedicate to something, the better you're going to get. And it is quite simple. But maintaining that level of time invested means that you really have to love what you do. If you don't love what you do, you need to modify it or find something that you can truly be passionate about. And people say the word passion all the time, passionate, passionate, passionate. Realistically, what excites you? When you think about doing something and you get excited, that's what you need to be doing. So if you can figure out what you're good at and what excites you and combine those two things, then you're onto a winner. But to get to a master level, you need to go through the four stages of learning. So I'll go through them with you. There is unconscious incompetence. So that's the first one. Unconscious incompetence is when you don't know that you can't do something. So you're not even aware that you're not capable of it. So, uh, I don't know, an example of that might be uh, a drunk guy in the middle of a club sees a guy on the dance floor break dancing. And he thinks to himself, yeah, I could do that. Here, hold my beer. And then goes on the dance floor and tries to do the same thing. He will then very quickly move into the second stage of learning once he falls flat on his face. So that will be conscious incompetence. Then you suddenly realize that you can't do it. So that's stage two. So maybe you wanted to try something and you thought, yeah, I'd give it a go. And then you tried it. And you realize that it's a lot harder than you thought it was. So that's going from unconscious incompetence, you don't know that you can't do it, to conscious incompetence, you do know that you can't do it. That's the second stage. That's an important stage. The third stage is where it's, well, conscious competence. Okay? So you are competent at it. You're able to do it now. You've invested many hours into learning. But you really have to think hard about what you're doing. Okay, so a good example for leather crafters would be, um, perhaps you learnt how to hand stitch uh, a few weeks ago. And now when you hand stitch, you are having to think about every single stage. Okay, so pushing the all in, chasing it with the needle on the left side, coming under it into a T, crossing it over, pulling it through, turning it 90 degrees, pushing it back in over the top of the thread grabbing the thread, wrapping it over the top of the needle, pulling the needles through, oh, and you need to pull them at an angle. So you know that you're having to do that on each and every stitch. If that's you, you are in the stage of conscious competence. You are aware of how to do it, and you can do it. The third stage is unconscious competence. Okay? So unconscious competence... Is when you no longer have to think about it, you are so good at it. So an example, if that's not where you are, if you can't hold a conversation whilst you're stitching and you know keep looking up away from what you're doing, then you're not quite there yet. Um, A good example would maybe, I don't know, say your grandmother, she was knitting and she'd be watching the television as she's knitting. And she's, you know, she's watching a comedy show and she's laughing and she's looking at you. Oh, isn't that funny? And her hands are still moving at a thousand miles an hour. That is unconscious competence. Or maybe you've experienced it where you've been driving home uh, from work. You do that route every day, every day. You're driving home from work. You finally pull into your street. And then you have this weird feeling like, I don't even remember driving here. That's weird, I can't remember the last 10 minutes. And it's kind of worrying, thinking, what the hell? So that's where your unconscious brain, your subconscious has been auto-piloting your driving. Uh, that's where a lot of accidents happen actually, but you've become so good at it that you can put it to the back of your brain. And your conscious brain is probably thinking about, I don't know, what happened during the day, uh, office gossip, what are you going to eat that night, uh, what are you going to watch on television, the argument you had yesterday? It could be a million things, but your conscious brain is now elsewhere. So your subconscious brain is now at the wheel, essentially. That is unconscious competence, and that is essentially mastery. That is where people have, you know, a sweeping gesture, maybe they're skiving leather. Um, maybe they just have, you know, they just cut everything out in one go when they're cutting out from patterns. Um, you, ju- you can tell someone who's done something a thousand times, you know, it's, uh, was it Bruce Lee that said, um, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times and that's very true in craft you know it's uh, and again it's the 10,000 hour rule and in this case bruce lee has talked about 10,000 kicks which is a bit of a coincidence but essentially when you've done something over and over and over and over again that's why they say practice makes perfect and uh, you know and it's time invested and lastly daniel from norway how can i improve to a master level have fun you know, that could uh, that could easily be number one in this. Because if you're not having fun, you're not going to invest time. And if you force yourself to, you're not going to learn because your brain's going to shut down to learning because it's not enjoyable. So always make sure that you're having fun. If you get to a point in your craft where you're not having fun, you're not enjoying it, you need to evolve, become more creative and, you know, Try something different or do what you do in a different way so that it becomes more fun. You know, I'd, I mean, I've never heard this anywhere before and it could be utter shit. But in my mind, this is how I feel. Production kills creativity. I remember when I first started out, I presented these slightly overcomplicated card holders, and yes, I put them on Etsy and yes, I sold, sold them locally and yes, I sold lots to friends and family. When I first started out, uh, it, it was a, a calf leather card holder, um, quite simply made, well stitched on the side, edge painted, and on the top was French binding, which is a pain in the ass to do. Anyway, it took longer than it should have to make each card holder. and in the end, I'd get an order through, and you know my heart would sink every time I got a payment you know, and it wasn't because I wasn't charging enough for them or I wasn't charging what they were worth. It was because I'd made so many of these damn things that I just got bored of making them to the point where I didn't want to make them anymore. But hey, you know, it was making good money, but I wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. And I entered the realm of, of, just production, just producing this, you know, continuous line of of card holders. I did them in a few different colors. I also did a few uh, watch straps and things like that. But it was the card holders that sold more than anything else. But for me, production just stifled my creativity. So you know, you need to find a way that you can constantly evolve and improve. So that you're not stuck in uh, in just producing and producing and producing. Uh, but that's my way of it. I mean, some people just love it. You know, they'll they'll show you with these 50 card holders that they've, they've cut out and, and hand-stitched and all that kind of thing. If that's your thing, absolutely. But for me, it stifled my craft and it stopped me from learning because I, you know, I'd mastered that particular card holder. You know, through many, many hours of doing the same thing. But I wasn't. I didn't have much time to play and try new things and study and learn and uh, and that's when I, I changed a few things about what I did. Uh, moving on, uh, next question from Ali from Indonesia. One place I have been on this list so far, um, the last question is actually from somebody from New York. Again, I haven't been there but I have been to Indonesia, a uh, wonderful place. Uh definitely recommend it at uh, Java. I think I spent a month. Yeah, I've spent a month there. And that was uh I was very young at the time. It's quite an eye-opener to uh to a different culture, so, And uh it definitely uh definitely fond memories. Anyway, Ali from Indonesia says, Where do I find all the supplies for materials for luxury leather goods? Now, <laughs> that is also a million-dollar question, Ali. <laughs> So, where do I find all the supplies for materials for luxury leather goods? Now, this is the this is the um, the thing that you will find when moving into really high quality luxury leather goods is your ability to click to buy now goes out the window. So, if you're used to buying things online, uh, you know just just. Googling something, ordering it, and then you know, click here to buy now. You know, oh, PayPal too. Excellent, thank you. And then it's on its way to you next day. That starts to go out the window. Um, you're moving into a very niche market because a lot of these suppliers are very much focused on the major brands. And they're not interested into selling to the little guys, the artisans, people first starting out who probably don't have much of an idea of how to work with, you know, big suppliers. Uh, may not be aware that there's huge minimum order quantities, and that you might have to be a VAT registered company in to, you know, just to be considered. And you have to kind of know the lingo and they need to know you and you know sometimes you have to build a bit of a uh, a rapport with them. Um, I know one tannery locally that supplies to uh, when I say locally, it's about <sighs> about 15, 20 minutes away. They only work with big companies, companies like Alfred Dunhill, Chanel, uh, Simpsons is another one, and a few others I forget their names now. But they're used to dealing with big suppliers, so I, the only way that I could get in was to call up the owner, is to find the owner's name. So I called up, secretary answered, and I said, uh, you know, can I uh, can I speak to the uh, to the owner? And they said, uh, who's calling? I said, uh, my name is Phil. I'm from a new company that's just started. I'm blah 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 blah. Made it sound like I was somebody you know starting with a larger company uh, not lying or anything but just kind of making myself sound bigger than i was and they said oh he's busy he's in a meeting he'll call you back etc anyway he called me back i explained the situation uh you know he, they don't advertise that i don't believe they have a website even uh, the first question he asked me is how did you find out about us and uh, I won't answer how I found out about them. But uh, somebody told me. Uh, anyway, I just created a relationship with the guy. I told him what I was trying to do and that I was trying to buy local. I wanted to buy from a British tannery and I really respected their leathers. Could I come in just to have a chat? I didn't say anything about I want to start buying from you. Could I come in? Would it be unreasonable to ask if I could come in to have a chat? And, you know... When someone says, would it be unreasonable? Well, it's not unreasonable. So the only, you know, logical answer is no. So I said, okay, can I come by tomorrow? No, it can't do tomorrow. Okay, how about Thursday or Friday? And he said, okay, Thursday. So I came in and I just had a chat with him and, uh, you know, just was really interested in what he was talking about. And I said, can I have a look at some of the machines? Some of the machines from like 1907, I think. And they were still using them daily. It was incredible and uh anyway we just got chatting and we really hit it off he was really interested in what he did obviously he's been doing it for 40 years and uh you know i was just really engaged with the guy and i said look i know you don't sell to smaller guys but is there any is there any chance that i could uh, i could buy from you and He goes, a lot of this leather is spoken for i said i really want some of those hides over there and some for me he goes no nah, unfortunately that's for bentley I said, "What do they want it for?" He said, "Oh, they're gonna they're gonna make some uh, some you know folios for their salespeople, and they wanted us to produce something special in their colors. And I said, "You know what? It would just mean the world to me. I just want one hide, just one hide. Is you know? It's you know they wanted. Do they know how many they've got?" And he said, "Well, no." I said, "Just just one. You know, I. How much is it?" And he gave me a price. I said, "You know, just one. That would be great. Would it be unreasonable for me to ask to buy one hide from you?" And he thought about it for a second and he was hesitating and that's all I needed to keep bugging him. And I just kept talking and talking until he just goes, all right, all right, all right, I'll see what I can do. And as soon as he said that, I said, I want some of those over there. Oh, those are for Dunhill. <laughs> I ended up coming away with a few good hides and building a good relationship. But that is what it's sometimes like dealing with these companies that only usually deal with high-end manufacturers and luxury leather goods companies and you, you have to learn to build a relationship not all of them but some of them they don't like dealing with small people because you're a small fry you're not going to give them big money you're taking up valuable time that they could be spending on people they're investing millions in one order sometimes so the best way is to try and do your research find out where the companies are that you want to work with maybe luxury tanneries it might be people that produce hardware in the uk italy france Um, maybe they do really expensive locks you know really high quality stuff and then you know looking for companies that sell reinforcements and interlinings that sell to major leather goods companies and try and Email the companies and say, look, I'm looking for, don't say, you know, ideally, if you've got the word leather or something to do with a business as your email address, rather than, you know, go, go leather at gmail.com. If it finishes in like mine, for example, Finch leather, I find I get a lot further with that email than my own personal email at hotmail.com, for example so with a business email that looks presentable especially if you have a company picture in your email signature it looks a lot better and just say that you want to order some samples and then they might tell you the minimum order quantities you might find that the sample orders are enough for what you need but you can essentially say to them okay this is where i am in the world I want what you have, who's the local supplier, sometimes they might come back and say, there's nobody in your country, but we can send international, hear the costs, and then work it out that way. So, try and find these companies, I mean, they're all over the place, you need to do your research, um, but, uh, you know, just off, off the top of my head, say, MM Colombo makes, you know, really good Italian locks, uh, I, actually, they also have a consumer website, I think, Abbas Fashion Accessories. I think they're the same, they actually have the same address, but, uh, you know, for example, on locks. So, you can contact them and say, you know, how much does it cost to ship to my country, or do you have any supplies in my country? Um, some suppliers might say yes, some might say no, and some might outright just ignore you, and be prepared for that. You might email the same company three or four times, and you don't hear anything. They're just assuming that you're nobody, unfortunately, and that is a real pain in the ass when it comes to getting good suppliers is if you're not a big fish a lot of the times they don't want to hook you on their line and that's unfortunately a truth that you will find so moving away from just click to buy on on eBay and things like that you know and that's something I've actually in my latest course uh, on watch traps the manufacturer of luxury watch traps for interlinings and reinforcements and things like that, it's actually quite a challenge to find suppliers that are easy to buy from. So, you know that's but that's um, that's just part of it, and that's uh, it's part of the game. Unfortunately, if you see it as a bit of a game, then you won't be too disappointed. But finding reliable suppliers um, can be a bit of an issue. But if you persist and you're smart and you're dedicated to building relationships with people, you can often do quite well. Moving on to the last question uh, that I'm going to have on this podcast. And this is from Hannah from New York. And she writes in with a slightly longer question, so bear with me. Um, I have a topic for suggestion. I don't know if you're tailoring your podcast to those already with skills. But one thing I'm currently having trouble with is embossing and hot foil stamping. I know there are various factors involved. Pressure, temperature, time, etc., but it would be so wonderful to have more information. Example, I've definitely thought you need a high temperature to do hot foil stamping, but then ended up melting the foil on my stamp. I currently have a Regad M3000 that I attached a custom stamp to, but I haven't been successful. I know Kingsley is a popular brand for Arbor presses, but I also know that they no longer produce. So what are the alternatives? So Hannah from New York. Um, strangely enough, today. Um, although this, I think this was sent uh, Saturday, sixth of October, apparently. Um, today I took uh, receipt of a new hot stamp machine. I actually went to uh, talking about going to visit supplies. I went to uh, and arranged to have a meeting with the owner of Metallic Elephant, which is in Colchester in Essex. It's about two-hour drive from me. And uh, I went there to have a play with their hot foil machines and just see which one I wanted. And I came away with a KSF Mini, which is a hot foil stamping machine uh, that I really like. It's an amazing machine. Very, very, very good, well-built machine. And I like the fact that it's not too far away from me where it's made. But anyway, I will be doing a future course on the leathercraftmasterclass.com for hot foil which is, I think, a pain point for a lot of people because I think more people would buy machines and use them effectively if there was somewhere where they could learn how to use it. And there, you know, some, some places uh, do sell machines, uh, usually that they don't produce themselves. And they will give you a rundown of how to use it. But they're not really masters of hot foil stamping leather, you know, they're also making and selling machines for use on card and paper and vinyl and other textiles, etc. So they're not really going to tell you all the tips of the trade, They're, you know, they're tricks of the trade rather, they're not going to tell you how to use it on exotic leathers or leathers with heavy textures, chrome tan leathers versus veg tan leathers, when to use Something soft underneath the leather, and when not to, what temperatures, what temperatures for foil stamping, what temperatures for embossing. There's a lot to it, or debossing rather than embossing, debossing. There's a lot to it, so I think it would be a good idea to do a course and show people how to use it properly. So that they can then decide whether it's something that they want to purchase for their business. Because it's an investment. It's much like a skiving machine. You're definitely going to... If you're doing this as a business and you want to make a living and you want to make a good living. Then it's one of those things like a skiving machine. You're just going to have to get... You're just going to have to invest the money into something good. That's going to last for years. That's reliable. And... You, can't, you just can't do that on the cheap. I tried it with uh, Chinese hot foil machines and I had two of them and they were both junk. They are both currently broken. So it's a situation of buy once, cry once. So what machine you end up buying is completely up to you. I, my choice is uh, Metallic Elephant. I think they're the best, but that's my personal choice. But anyway, I will be coming out with a course dedicated to hot foiling. So watch out. So this week's episode was dedicated to all the readers' questions. Uh, I obviously I couldn't go through all of them. Um, you know, there was uh, a few dozen, let's just say that. So I just picked them at random and uh, I hope those of you whose questions I answered, I answered effectively and thoroughly enough. But uh, if you do have any more questions, guys, please feel free to come in chime in you might ask for more clarification on something you might ask for something completely different it can even be outside of leathercraft that has something to do with it it's really you know i'm uh, i'm open to any kind of questions so feel free if you are interested in learning more check out leathercraftmasterclass.com that's my website if you're not on it already if you're listening on spotify leathercraftmasterclass.com link shall be in there check out the latest courses i've just released the manufacture of luxury watch wraps part two Um, part three to follow in the next couple of weeks once i finish up the editing that will be the third installment so check that out and there's lots of other classes that are available that you can watch and stream online from hand stitching to how to sharpen knives how to skive how to use adhesive effectively and lots of different things so go there check it out and if you do like this podcast and you want to help towards fees obviously there's uh, fees for hosting podcasts whoever thought i mean you can uh, you i can put 10 hours of hd video on youtube for free uh, but i can't put a podcast up there for free <laughs> it costs more than my website which is weird it blows my mind but anyway if you want to donate on leathercraftmasterclass.com on the podcast page there is a tip jar so you don't have to and you can tip any amount if you want to but everything I get through there just goes back into the podcast. Um, so, if I get enough, I'll just buy better equipment. Uh, so, we'll get better sound quality, hopefully. And, uh, but stay tuned for interviews. That's something I'm really interested in because I really want to. I've got some great questions for people that I want to interview. And uh, really interesting questions, not just the obvious, uh, not just technique based questions, but questions about what made them do what they do and again if you are interested in being interviewed then shoot me a dm give me an email philip at leathercraftmasterclass.com that's philip with one l because it's more exclusive hence luxurious thanks for listening and i will see you next week take care